Okay, so if you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. So just by way of review, we uh, in our first session, we worked through Genesis chapter 1, talking about mankind as the culmination of creation. Mankind as the culmination of creation. We're made in the image of God. As a result of that, we are to live, to model, uh, the and reflect God in his image in creation, but particularly in this idea of companionship, which is what we expanded upon in Genesis chapter 2, with the idea that we are companions in creation. God made woman because it was not good for man to be alone, and we contemplated the idea of the one flesh relationship that is the ideal that he points to at the end of chapter 2. And so from here, again, it's, it's now, if you know anything about the storyline of the Bible, then you know where we're heading, right? I've already forecasted it to be sure, but Genesis chapter 3 is the entrance of sin into the world. You can see it in your, uh, in your notes, page 21. This will be our, our thought flow outline. We're not going to spend a lot of time in verses 1 to 6. We're just simply going to mention, of course, that's what the narrative is recording, is the entrance of sin into the world. We have the disobedience of Adam and Eve. So they partake of the fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the sin, sin enters the human race. And as a result of that, this is where we'll really camp out on, is verses 7 to 19, we see the disruption of the relationships that are involved, not only between man and God, but man and his spouse, man and the earth, all of the relationships that were designed by God in the ideal existence of the Garden of Eden, those have been ruptured. And so we'll see, we'll trace these four big ideas. We'll look at the selfishness that emerges in Adam and Eve, which is really the root cause. I, I mentioned that a little bit last session, but the root cause of the struggle that they will experience. We'll see selfishness, then we'll look at shame. We'll look at sorrow, and then the struggle that uh, is placed upon man. So this, of course, is, is the bad news, right? This is where we go from the ideal of chapter 2 to now this is where we are in light of sin. And this is where we find ourselves, right? Because we are living this side of the fall. We're living this side of the Garden of Eden. We are still uh, in a sin-cursed, fallen creation and so as a result of that, we must use, and I forecasted this before, but we're going to use the model of the divine pursuit. In other words, we see the, the sin of man, we see the, they're exiled from the garden, ultimately because of their sin, but that's not the end. God pursues them, he comes to them, he promises redemption, and in that, he sets a pattern for us in our lives, our marriages, how we are to ultimately reflect God in that way. So, again, this is a big thought flow through the chapter. But if you've got your Bible, let's go ahead and read the chapter. That's a good place to start. And then we'll uh, remind ourselves of the context where we left off in chapter 2. Then we'll jump into, into this new material, all right? Genesis chapter 3, if you've got your Bible, just follow along as I read. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, uh, from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Verse 9. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded that you, shouldn't, you should not eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this thing, you are cursed above all cattle, but above every beast of the field upon your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and it shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow in, in your conception. In sorrow you will bring forth children, and your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And unto Adam he said, Because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife, and have eaten the tree, which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow... Shall you eat of it all the days of your life? Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face shall you eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and unto dust you will return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And unto Adam also and his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil. Now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed the east of the garden of Eden, cherubim, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, as I said before, if you know the history of the Bible, you know the history of mankind. This is, of course, a low point. Right? We go from the ideal existence that God intended in creation, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, to now the entrance of sin because uh, the deception uh, by the devil, we see the disobedience by uh, Adam and Eve that results then in a disruption of the relationships. Now, just so we understand and can pre appreciate and appropriately understand the, the heights to which they you know, were and, and the depths to which they fell, Recall with me briefly, we, we didn't comment on this much at the end of last session. We really focused primarily on verse 24 in chapter 2, that man shall leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But let me highlight just briefly verse 25 so that you can understand the ideal state in which Adam and Eve existed and how that is, of course, disrupted by the time we see the entrance of sin in chapter 3. But notice again, chapter 2, verse 25 says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Again, summarizing 24, 25, When marriage takes, as I say in your notes, page 21, when marriage takes the shape mandated by God, Genesis 2, 24, it's publicly acknowledged, 
permanently sealed and physically uh, consummated, then we have the one flesh relationship, right? This is the ideal that we talked about last time. Well, that ideal is then described as, again, final uh, point on the page, page 21. Doug McLaughlin used to say, when marriage takes this shape, there is no shadow of shame or embarrassment. In other words, it pictures them in this ideal existence of naked and unashamed. So let's comment on that just briefly. Page 22. There was perfect ease between Adam and Eve because there was perfect love. At the beginning, it was a love that was both sacred and selfless. It had no alloy of greed, lust, distrust, or dishonor. It was unmixed, unadulterated. It was sacred and selfless love. That's what they enjoyed. And that sort of love is, and I think this is fascinating, we're going to build upon this much in this session, but it was described as them being naked and unashamed. Literally, to be exposed without blushing. Again, if you're familiar with this, we talk about it once in a while in various contexts. The Hebrew language tends to be, the Hebrew culture uh, reflected you know, by that language is, is a very concrete language. In other words, it takes abstract ideas, such as love, or in this case, shame, and it expresses that, that abstract concept with a concrete reality. Concrete meaning it's something that you can, you can sense with your five senses. So in the Hebrew fashion, they give a concrete sense to express the abstract idea of shame. Instead of explaining <coughs> shame in abstract terms, the Hebrews noted how it impacted the physical sentence or senses. Therefore, the Hebrew word for shame has the idea of face draining of color, becoming pale, uh, or even uh, the idea of dry mouth, draining of moisture. Both of these are physical reactions which our senses can detect to the undesirable feeling of shame. Right, you've all been there, right? Uh, if you've ever raised children, you see it so clearly when they are caught right, and ashamed, right? They, they avoid eye contact, they, they lower their head. If you've got a dog that does this, you have a dog training, right? right? The tail goes between the legs, right? I mean, they're, 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 the experience of shame is obvious when, they, when they, they exhibit that internal emotion and feeling with all of these external signals. But, as Atkinson says, he says it well, quote, there has been, or there was between them an openness and a unity, not masked by guilt, not disordered by lust, not hampered by shame. Shame, in Bible speak, is the fruit of sin. Without sin, there would be no shame. Therefore, the state that is being described is one of blissful harmony because of absolute fidelity and the absence of sin. Right? That's the ideal picture that cha chapter 2 ends with. They're naked and unashamed. There's a perfect openness. There's a unity. There's no shame. There's no uh, desire to run and hide. Or as we'll see, you know, blame shift or run away or all of the various reactions to their sin that we'll see. And we do see, not only them, but there are great, 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 great grandparents. And it's true of us. Right? We've all done likewise. That's what's so profoundly convicting about Genesis chapter 3 is that we can all see ourselves in it because we have that sinful nature. So as we work through these, uh, these notes and, and the, the result of sin that steals this perfect ideal relationship and now casts it in the idea of shame and sorrow and selfishness, then we see how this ideal relationship is sabotaged, is torpedoed. And it starts falling apart. 
And we can see these patterns in our own lives, in our own marriages, in our own conversations with our spouse. We can see the actions and reactions of Adam and Eve are something we just continue to perpetuate. So again, bottom of page 22, big heading, mankind amidst corruption in creation. Again, entrance of sin, verses 1 to 6, brought with it the disruption of relationships. Again, for sake of time, we can't exposit each one of these verses. And obviously there's lots of things that we, by nature of trying to condense a lot of these big ideas into just three sessions and focus on, on a one-day marriage conference, there's lots of things we can't say. But nonetheless, trying to get at the core of what these chapters are saying in relation to our marriage, recognize the ideal state is described as being naked and unashamed. Well, once it enters, now we have disruption of relationships. And this disruption is first seen with selfishness and striving. Uh, I, I forget the first time I noticed this, but when I was reading through Genesis chapter 3, there's a, again, if you're into English or languages, then you'll, you'll be familiar with the term of, of a reflexive pronoun. Verse 7 and 8, you see two of them right away. In other words, the temptation has happened, verses 1 through 5. The woman partakes of the tree of the you know, knowledge of uh, good and evil, verse 6. Then the result of it, verse 7. And notice again, it says, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made, and then here's your reflexive pronoun, made themselves aprons. Again, verse 8, they heard the voice of the Lord God walk in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. That, it seems very simple, almost insignificant, but that's the first reflexive pronoun in the Bible. The idea that they are doing something, why? For themselves. Last session, if you recall, we or was two, I think it was our first session. We talked. We went to uh, Revelation chapter four, verse eleven. The purpose of our creation, our existence, is to bring glory to God. Right? We're created for His pleasure, for His glory. But now we're already seeing immediately after sin enters in, what's the first sign? Well, now they're doing something not for the glory of God, but for themselves. We continue on through the rest of Scripture, and we find that sin at its very core is selfishness. It's autonomy from God. It's the deification of man. We're trying to take God's place. And the suffix there, the selves, the selfishness, is perhaps the first evidence of that in the Bible. In fact, let me just go there briefly. I have it in your notes, top of page 23. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15 will actually define sin or a life of sin as living according to ourselves. The core of sin is selfishness. It's autonomy. It's the desire to have it my way, to do my thing in my way at my time. I'm in charge. And that sort of selfish desire is, in essence, the core of sinfulness. Let me just read that real, real briefly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. And again, uh, the context here, he's actually talking, well, maybe it's helpful for us to, to back up to verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ constrains us. It motivates us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. And that if he died for all, that they which should live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. In other words, in the gospel, Paul argues there is a fundamental shift in reality. Through the selfless sacrifice and love of Christ, that transforms us 
and it motivates us. That's what the word constrain means. It motivates us towards selfless sacrifice. But what were we before the cross of Christ? He says, you lived unto yourself. That is the essence of human nature. That is the essence of human sinfulness, is we live according to ourself. Now, there's an interesting outline here, not original with me, but I find it very helpful. And I have it there in page, on page 23. It's an outline, you see it in the A's, but it's an outline describing or elaborating upon what it looks like to live for yourself. First, it starts with autonomy. This is self-rule, right? You're familiar with the word autonomy. It comes from Greek. And it literally means self-rule, to rule yourself. We want to rule ourselves. We murmur against God because we don't like his decisions, direction, and development of our lives. Sin begins with autonomy. Well, because I want to rule myself, I have an agenda. If I can decide what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, now I have an agenda. I can set my own agenda, my goals, and I then will strive to accomplish them. Right? Well, if there is an agenda that I have, then you have an agenda, but I want my agenda to beat your agenda. So what am I going to do? I'm going to strive to take advantage of you and my circumstances, my resources. So I'm going to seek to have an edge over other people so that we can advance our own agenda. Again, once we have found that advantage, we press that advantage. We exploit that advantage. Why? So that we can press toward our own goal in achieving our own agenda. So we, we, we look for advancement. We try to take our agenda and, and move it, right? We're trying to go towards our goal, and then, of course, we're ultimately trying to achieve our agenda, the collection of accolades, the feelings of accomplishment we get when we look back upon our own goals that we have completed. In other words, we live life surrounding these ideas. We want our way, our time, you know, do our thing and our way, our time. So my agenda is going to overcome yours, and I'm going to exploit your weaknesses. I'm going to advance my cause. I'm going to achieve my end goal, regardless of whether or not it helps you or hurts you. doesn't matter, because why? I'm the center of my universe. That's autonomy. Well, that is the essence of human sinfulness. It's all about me. And I, I've said this before in, in every marriage conference we've done, every marriage counseling you know, s- situation, scenario I do, is, you know, this is fundamentally what is what sabotages relationships is because God has rigged the system. He really has. He's rigged the system to where if we honor his way and we serve our spouse and we, we put ourselves last and I serve my spouse and then my spouse serves me, then both of us are being served. Right? It's, it's a beautiful system. But what sabotages the system is when I refuse to serve my spouse. I want to serve myself. And I want my spouse to serve me. And it's all about me. And I become the center of my little world, my little kingdom. And what happens is now you have two people, instead of working together, right, where they're both serving one another, strengthening the whole, the one flesh relationship, rather than that, you have two people, not one, you have two pulling opposite directions because they both have different agendas, different goals, different purposes in life. We see this all the time in various ways. It comes out most explicitly, or I don't know, not explicitly, but it's easy to illustrate in finances. All right, you have husband, wife. They have different goals when it comes to finances. One's a spender, one's a saver. Right? So they're going to butt heads over this. 
Well, I want this. Well, we need to do this. Well, I think it's this. You see what I'm saying? That's a big one. It could be, but it could be anything in between. That could be what you decide for a hobby. Well, we have free time. I think we should do this. Well, I think we should do this. Well, let's go on vacation. Well, I want to go there. I don't like that. I want to go here. <laughs> well, now before long, before having a fun time, you're fighting about it, right? And it's like, why? Because you both have an agenda. Why? Because you're both selfish. Right? That's the way we are. It's our human nature. But notice how selfishness, autonomy, when I make myself the center, it will sabotage my relationships. Because rather than serving and loving and sacrificing, I am making them serve and sacrifice, but I want to be served. And that sort of idea will ruin a relationship. Well, simultaneous, or next, all right, not only do we see selfishness, but next, page 23, we see shame. Now think about this. The, the, I, I read a uh, book a few years ago. It's called The Soul of Shame. found this very helpful. I adapted some of these notes from that. And just, just think about this for a second. Let me walk you through this. Again, verse 25 of chapter 2 describes the ideal state of Adam and Eve as naked and unashamed. This is an interesting choice of words. It's also insightful regarding the basic makeup of mankind. Naked and unashamed is the description of mankind's original ideal existence, but the entrance of sin brought shame. Perhaps you're familiar with this, but it's a helpful distinction. It's often said that shame is different than guilt, and that guilt says I've done something wrong, while shame says something is wrong with me. Guilt says, I've done something wrong, while shame says, something is wrong with me. In other words, to define shame, shame is a deep sense of inadequacy. It results in feelings of insecurity and loneliness, which in turn leads to a deep sense of depression, despondency, and despair. Loneliness is the opposite of how mankind was created. Recall, God created woman because it was not good for man to be alone. God himself exists in triunity. Relational fellowship is inherent to the nature of God and thus to the nature of mankind who is made in the image of God. Next page, page 24. Since the entrance of sin in the human race is, a, uh, is arguable, arguable that much, if not most, get this, when I discovered this, it was a, kind of a light bulb moment. But since the entrance of sin in the human race, it is arguable that much, if not most, of human activity is driven by a sense of shame. How so? One of two scenarios, or both, a mixture thereof. Either we operate out of a deep sense of inadequacy and striving to earn favor and prove ourselves. Or we operate from a sense of acceptance by trying to avoid behaviors which would bring shame. Right? We see this all the time. Simple illustration in my life. I was a high school uh, wrestler. I was a football player in like ninth grade because I was this size in ninth grade. <laughs> and then they all kept growing, and you know, football was no longer my thing. <laughs> they got bigger than me. So, so I had a football buddy say, "Hey, you should come out for wrestling." So what do you do? Well, I mean, I'm I'm a sophomore in high school, never wrestled in my life, you know, and so. But to be one of the guys, <coughs> well, you got to work your butt off to earn respect. How do you earn respect? Well, hard work and win matches, right? That's how you do it. Well, so you're, I'm operating from a sense of inadequacy. 
I'm a newbie. A lot of these guys have been wrestling since three, four, five years old. And, I mean, this is my first time in a wrestling mat. I feel like I have to work extra hard to try and catch up. So a lot of my striving is coming from a sense of inadequacy. I have to prove myself to this team. Because now, you know, I, I want to be one of them. So I'm striving out of a sense. I want to avoid shame. I don't want to be shamed. I don't want to be that guy who lets down the team. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to be that guy who's the wuss, who's the last in line or whatever. So I'm trying to avoid shame, so I'm going to work hard. Well, then, come, you know, and, and I'll spare you all the details of my wrestling career, but my, my senior year, I become, I'm, I'm voted in as a captain. I'm accepted. I'm one of the team. I'm a leader of the team. I've worked my butt off for two years, had a certain amount of, you know, success. Now I'm, now I'm in charge. Well, now I'm scared to death. Before, I worked hard because I wanted to be accepted. Now, I'm part of the in crowd. I am part of, I'm, I'm captain of the team. But now I'm afraid, well, now I gotta, you know, I can't lose this status. I gotta work extra hard. Why? Because they made me a captain, and now I gotta prove myself, and I, may, I don't wanna fall from what I've gained. And the stress level, I mean, it was exhausting. I was, I was looking forward to the end of my wrestling season my senior year. I remember it was, I was walking out to the final match. It was the state championship. And I, and I was sitting there, and the biggest thought just kept running through my mind. It was like, I can't wait till this is over. I can't wait to just be done with this. Why? Because of the pressure. Thousands of people gathered around watching you. Your whole team's there. You're the captain. Don't let them down. Everything that motivated me, it's a sense of shame. Does that make sense? I'm trying to avoid shame. So everything I do is to either achieve a certain status or protect that status from being shamed. So much of our life revolves around that. Your marriage revolves around that. How many times do you do things because you don't want to hear your spouse say what you think they're going to say? Right? You alter your behavior because you're trying to avoid a fight. You're trying to, again, avoid shame. You don't want to be a failure. So much of life is driven this way. Wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to operate with a sense of shame? What if we could experience unconditional, perfect love, regardless of my successes or my failures? I'm accepted with unconditional love. Wouldn't that be nice? Could you imagine how freeing that would be? I don't care what you think because God loves me. Wow, what freedom. What blessedness in marriage to say we don't have to earn, gain, or maintain, but we have unconditional love where we're not always trying to outrun ourselves and avoid shame. I think it's so interesting how shame is viewed in the scripture as the being naked and unashamed is the ideal state. Wow. Next paragraph. The opposite of shame is union and communion, acceptance and love. Shame causes us to bear, or be, rather, our own worst enemy. Because here's the irony of it, right? Let me just keep reading. We, shame causes us to be our own worst enemy. Why? Because in that we run from God because we are ashamed and fear rejection. What is their reaction? 
right, when they sin. They run from God. But, and when they're running from God because they, they, they fear rejection. They're ashamed. They're, they're afraid of what God's going to do and how he's going to react. But what should they have done? Continue reading. When, in fact, we ought to flee to God. Why? Because God is our only source of unconditional love and genuine acceptance. When we stand in God's love, we are free from shame and can have, we can live in true joy. However, when we do not know or trust the true nature of God, we actually flee from God amidst our shame, therefore retain our shame and repeat the cycle. Our sin results in guilt and shame and loss of joy. All religions essentially are the same, it, it's the same thing. It's an attempt to do away with guilt and shame. If we were to state this in the positive, humans are searching for meaning, satisfaction, and purpose in life. To state the same truth in the negative, we're seeking for a way to be free from guilt and shame. Think about that. That is a universal truth. There's, religion is in the heart of mankind. Every religion is, is a desire, ultimately, to be free from guilt and shame and despair. And it doesn't matter where you go, what culture, what continent you go to, there's religion there. And every one of those religions is trying to do away with, sh with this idea of shame and guilt. How do we stand free, naked and unashamed, where we don't have to hide and dodge and try to put up this facade that I'm something when I'm not? Because that's what drives us. Middle of page 24, next major heading, sinful response to sin. Just track this. This still happens Today, each of us are guilty of this. Each of us are guilty of this in our own marriages. Genesis 3, 6 to 13. In that passage we just read, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, we normally respond to sin as follows. Notice there are four different responses. Rather than simply owning up to their sin, admitting it, receiving God's forgiveness or the forgiveness of your spouse in a relationship, what do we do? We respond to sin sinfully, first by fear. Adam admits that. I, I ran and I hid from God. Why? God says, Why, where are you? Why did you run? He says, well, I was afraid when I heard you coming. Fear motivated him to flee. Second, they take fig leaves and they try to sew themselves aprons, coverings. So first simple response to sin is to, to be afraid. Second, false covering. I'm, I'm going to hide my true self. I'm going I'm to create a facade. I'm going to live a double life. Number three, flight. They run and hide among the trees of the garden. Number four, blame shifting. God says to Adam, what'd you do? He says, well, it was the woman. God says, all right, woman, what'd you do? Well, it was a serpent. Right? And then if you're not, I mean, if, if you're a careful reader, we'll even see that it takes the next step. In fact, let me read the next few paragraphs. This is by uh, James Montgomery Boyce. Interesting observations. He says this, quote, Modern men and women do the very same thing. Instead of confessing our nakedness, sinfulness, before God, we devise various religious cover-ups, which are designed to make us feel respectable without making us feel too uncomfortable. Top of page 25. We prefer self-righteousness, which feeds our pride, to the God kind of righteousness, which demands humility, a humble admission of sin, and a believing acceptance of Christ. It is on the ground of such humble faith in Christ that we are robed, covered, or clothed in his righteousness. Philippians 3.9, 2 Corinthians 4, or, uh, 5, verse 21. 
Next paragraph. The terrible thing about sin is that it makes a person a fugitive from God. Sin inverts and twists our original, warm, and loving relationship with God so that it becomes something hideous and horrifying. We fear to come to him and therefore hide in the midst of whatever intellectual or psychological shrubbery we can find. I love that. It says they, you know, they hit him on the trees of the garden in Boyce's rephrasal. He says we hide amidst whatever intellectual or psychological shrubbery we can find. Last paragraph of, of his quote. The way we deny guilt and affirm innocence is by blaming someone or something else other than ourselves. This is, again, basic selfishness. We're trying, to, we're, we're trying to make ourselves look good. We're trying to avoid shame. So what do we do? We dodge it. Whenever we deny our guilt for wrong choices we have made uh, by pleading circumstances, we are ultimately blaming one of only two possible individuals, God or the devil, end quote. Now, either way, we're, we're, uh, we are exempting, we're justifying ourselves. That's the whole point. When we're running hiding, blame-shifting. We're trying to justify ourselves. We're trying to exempt ourselves. This is the birth of this whole victimization syndrome. I'm not a guilty sinner. I'm an innocent victim. Our culture perpetuates this terribly. Again, modern man has relabeled these ideas with words you might be familiar with. Bottom of page 25, you have all in the, in the bold uh, font and underlined. Here's the, here's the words that you're probably familiar with. It's just modern relabeling of these same basic ideas. First, repression or suppression. Suppression being often involuntary suppression, voluntary denial. This is excluding certain thoughts or facts so I won't have to face guilt or shame. This is telling only half of the story, right? I'm trying to just drop out the bad parts so I don't have to face them. Why? Because I'm trying to avoid shame. I'm trying to justify myself. I'm trying to look good. Next, rationalization. This is producing a falsehood to defend against the pain of guilt or shame. It's where I make an excuse. Well, yeah, I messed up, but it wasn't as bad as you might think, or this is why. If you understand the circumstances, this is what led to my failure, my sin, my bad decision. Rationalization. Next, compensation. This is classic. This is the whole Napoleon complex. You familiar with this? This is going overboard in one area of personality or behavior in order to cover up the pain in another area. Compensation is ordinarily used as a defense against felt inadequacy. Why do we call it the Napoleon complex? Remember this? Now, I mean, I've read differing accounts. Some say Napoleon was your average height Frenchman. But as legend goes, he was a short little dude. And he didn't like being seen as short. So what did he do? He overcompensated by conquering all of Europe. You know what I'm saying? Like, you think he was compensating just a little bit? <laughs> He's like, oh, I'm short, so I'm going to prove the world I'm, I'm adequate. I'm going to conquer everything. So that's the Napoleon complex. Compensation. Right? This is why, by the way, guys, when you come home with flowers and you haven't done that for six years, your wife says, what did you do? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're compensating. Okay? It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, next, projection. This is where I attribute my pain, weaknesses, and desires onto someone or something else, making it external rather than internal. Classic of this is this is the student illustration of this, classic illustration of this projection idea. It's like a student always finding something unfair about a test that he or she fails. I failed the test, but it's not me. It's not my study habits. It's not the fact that I you know, stayed up all night and partied down and didn't study. 
right? It's like, well, the teacher, he should have rewrote the test. It, it was a bad question. It was, you know, it's always something external. It's never my fault. It's always something else, projection. Last but not least, isolation. I avoid people or circumstances that might expose me. Proverbs 18.1, for instance, talks about this, how a fool will hide himself. Why? Well, because he's fearing exposure. Page 26. I want you to see not only the, the disruption, how sin ruins our relationships, first because of selfishness, second because of the shame-guilt complex that we all struggle with, but third, this idea of sorrow. There's actual sorrow that God introduces as curse because of sin in verse 26, or I'm, I'm sorry, page 26, it's, it's describing the sorrow first for the woman and then struggle for the man. That's the next page. So sorrow for the woman, what do I mean by that? Well, again, the sin of Adam and Eve overturned the order God has established in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The serpent, an animal creature, should have been ruled by Adam and Eve, but what happens? They, they themselves are being subject to the rule of God. That was the ideal. But, in fact, Adam and Eve do the serpent's bidding and in turn defy the one to whom they really owe obedience. Creation is turned upside down. This disbelieving disobedience is a decreating act. I love that word. We get it from uh, this, this book by Jeffrey Hogan Sock. So they say creation is uh, turned upside down. This disbelieving disobedience is a decreating act. Things are going backwards. They're in reverse. They're unraveling. Why? Because it reverses and undoes the ordered network of relationships that God had created. God designed us a particular way. And when we fit into God's design, it works. I use this illustration with my kids sometimes. I use it from the pulpit occasionally. I mean, I'm no master craftsman, but I do know the difference between a screwdriver and a hammer. You know what I'm saying? And if you use a tool for the purpose it was designed for, it works. But if you use a, a tool in a way that it was not designed for, it's not going to work. It's really frustrating. You guys ever had that happen? You're trying to do a job, you don't have the right tool? Man, is it frustrating. Right? And, and my, or you're using a knife edge, right, as a screwdriver, because, you, you know, it's not designed for that, so you snap the blade. That ever happened? Right? Or you bend the blade. It's like, well, you're using it in a way it wasn't designed to be used that way. So, of course, it's not going to work. It's going to get frustrating. Well, life is like that. God created us a certain way, and if we fit his way, it works. But what sin does is it creates dysfunction. It twists, it overturns, it subverts, it perverts what God originally intended, and so it, it, it undermines it. It, it steals all the blessing that God originally intended. Specifically, when it comes to the curse that the woman will experience, the text goes on to describe that sin creates a dysfunctional home. The woman is going to experience sorrow in her two primary roles as mother and wife. You notice this? Back to chapter 3, verse 16. God speaks to the woman and says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow, you will bring forth children, and your desire will be to your husband, and he will rule over you. What this verse 16 is talking about is that the woman is now going to experience this sorrow in her relationships, primarily in her two primary relationships. As a mother, she's going to experience the sorrow of childbirth. Again, first bullet point, for Eve, the bearing of children will become a difficulty. This difficulty will express itself in both physical and emotional pain 
and or sorrow. The reproductive process will bear the brunt of the curse because it was designed to produce saints. But, have you ever had children? <laughs> have you ever thought that, man, this is going to be so great to have kids? And then, man, little sinners. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it's like, man, has, has, do we have sorrow in childbirth? Not just the physical side, but the emotional side. Is there pain? Is there hardship? Is there sorrow? Are there, have you ever cried tears? Uh, weeping over your children? Women, can you agree that motherhood is, is hard? It's hard. It's hard because of sin. It's hard because of the curse. But not only will the woman's role as mother be sabotaged, but her role as wife will be sabotaged. This is what you might call the battle between the sexes. Three bullet points there, bottom of page 26. This is an ugly scene. It's a picture of two competing forces battling for ascendancy inside a relationship that was designed to be governed by love and selflessness, right? The whole one flesh relationship that we talked at the end of last time, that's the, the, the ideal, what we said just moments ago, that God rigged the system, designed it, where we ought to serve one another. If I serve my spouse and my spouse serves me, we're both being served. There's blessedness in that. If you place yourself last and your spouse first and you have two spouses in a godly you know, by God's design, doing it that way. Wow, is it blessed. But he then says in verse 16 that now, now your desire will be to your husband and he will rule over you. There's varying interpretations of that phrase, but I think this is what it's talking about. It's talking about this ugly scene, as I say here, of it's, it's a picture of two competing forces. Her desire, her craving will be to rule over her husband but he will rule over you. There's going to now be a battle for the front seat. Who's in charge of the home? Who makes the final decisions? There's going to be a battle. There's going to be sorrow over this. Second bullet point, this kind of relational dysfunction and matrimonial havoc is the result of the curse. It's a consequence of sin. It is what happens when we try to live life apart from God. It's the price we pay for autonomy. But... This is giving us a little peek of what's coming. Last bullet point, page 26. The only solution for this familial catastrophe is redemption through Jesus Christ. It is redemption which turns us inside out and right side up as it turns us away from self and to unself, which is the biblical definition of agape. That's that agape love, that selfless, sacrificial love. Then and only then are we equipped to fulfill the ideal for marriage articulated by Paul, in Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 33, where we are to then model, our marriage becomes a miniature model of the gospel, where the husband is a selfless, sacrificial lover in service, in service to his, his spouse. The wife is humble and submissive, reciprocating that love that was initiated by the husband. That sort of, of dynamic in the home is what God intends. And it's only possible, since the fall, it's only impossible through Christ and the gospel. That's Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 5. Page 27. Not only do we see sorrow for the woman, but we see struggle for the man. Can you relate to this? Does your home look like this? Notice that this curse for the woman is not only in, in relationship, but the, there's also, or there's a curse for the woman in her relationship, but there's also a curse for the man in his relationships, not only with his wife, that was described in verse 16, but now his job, verse 17. 
He says to Adam, because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife, eating the tree, which I commanded you, uh, saying, don't eat of it, then cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow you will eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles will it bring forth to you, and you will eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return unto the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and unto dust you will return. Between man and the earth, a rupture emerges. The ground no longer yields its fruit willingly, but reluctantly to mankind. Adam has become an errant king. In doing so, he has forfeited much of his dominion over creation, and nature now resists his will. Man must face sorrow daily as he scratches out a meager existence from what was before a fertile and luxuriant soil. Guys, we have to bear the burden, the hardship, the responsibility of providing, protecting, but in the midst of a world that resists us and resists our efforts. Third bullet point, Adam's sin has spoiled his environment and it suffers along with him since both are dust. You shall eat the herb of the field. It echoes chapter 2, verse 5, and anticipates his expulsion from the garden. That'll happen a few verses later, verse 23 of Matthew notes, Matthew's notes. Outside of which, outside the garden, that is, he must battle with the elements as a toiling farmer. This change in the external conditions for man also results in a change in the internal disposition of man. Can this be true? Guys, you ever come home from a really long, hard day at work? And you just walk in and you're, you're so happy to be home. You're so joyful to be home. You come to selflessly serve your family because you're godly and selfless and sacrificial like Christ. Or you come in, you slam the door, right? You stomp through the house. You're upset because everything was terrible at work today but you're going to dump it on your family. Instead of serve them, you're going to demand that they turn around and serve you. You're the king in your pathetic castle. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, where's my dinner? Where's my slippers? Where's my remote? Right? I'm going to sit down. I'm going to watch TV. I'm going to check out. You guys serve me. I'm not going to serve you. Life's hard. I get it. I get the fact of wanting to go home and check out. I get the fact, but that's part of the curse. Jobs are hard. It's meant to be that way because of the curse. It wasn't designed that way originally. Is there blessing in work and labor? Yeah. Is there a sense of accomplishment? Yeah. Is there a sense of, of contributing to society? Yeah. But does the society always help you in the process? Do you ever face resistance? Do you face a headwind? Do you ever beat your head against a wall? trying to do your job and nobody is helping, everything seems to be falling apart, and yet it's all on you. It's your responsibility. Buck it up. Get it done. You come home and you're exhausted. Now you carry that baggage into your home. I tell guys constantly, try to do this. It's, it's easier said than done. I totally get it. But when you get home, you're pulling out whatever, sit in the driveway, and you say, all right, get your game face on. I'm going in to serve my family. Because what's going to happen? Well, at least, you know, I still have little kids. I open the door, what are they going to do? They're going to run and scream, Daddy's home, Daddy's home. It's fun. It's time to wrestle. It's time to, you know, they want to they play. I don't always feel like playing. <laughs> I, don't, yeah, I, I don't always feel like doing it. And yet it's like, 
I, I love this passage, and it, it's a little bit different context, but remember 2 Samuel chapter 6, David, King David, just brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. There's this massive celebration. God is enthroned in Jerusalem. It's time to celebrate. He gives out portions to because there's probably sacrifices. They were making sacrifices. Daniel said it's a sacrificial portion. And he gives, so he's a chunk of meat. Right? Because that's manly. That's, that's what we do. Right? So it's a big barbecue. And he gives a chunk of meat to all the men that were present. And then he tells them, he says, go home and bless your household. I love that. That's like a one-line you know, statement on what we as men are supposed to do. He says, you, you go home and you walk through the door and you bless your household. He's got a meal in hand. He's ready to invite the family to food and fellowship, to have warmth and blessing around the family dinner table, to have unity and harmony and love and acceptance and joy. That's what God wants to do. And men, that's our job. We are to come home and we set the mood for our home. But for a lot of people, the guy comes walking in, what happens? The kids, oh no, dad's home. I wonder what, you know, what kind of mood is dad in today? Right? I, I mean, can we even talk to dad right now? Because, you know, are you blessing your household? Or when you show up, are they afraid that you're there? Are they dreading that you walk in the door? Right? I'd rather have the little kids run up, oh, daddy, 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 than the opposite. Be like, oh, no, run away. You know, <laughs> we don't want that. But the reality is, what is the mood of your home when you walk through the door? Whew. That's a potent question. If the mood is bad, it's on you. That doesn't mean that maybe your family had a bad day, right? But you can alter that mood. When a, when, a, when a husband comes home, a father comes home and takes charge of his family, it's amazing. They can have had a bad day, but things are better when dad gets home because he's there to bless his household. But that is hard. Why? Well, because, as I say here, the external conditions for man also result in a change of internal disposition of man. Joy, harmony, purpose give way to exhaustion. Frustration, discouragement, dissatisfaction, resentment. I should have got that promotion at work. I should be making more money. Should have done this. Should have done that. That guy's driving me nuts. And we bring that home. We have bitterness. We, we, we you know, poison our home rather than bless our home. We show up and our bitter spirits are on edge tempers where we're ready to fly off the handle at the, at the smallest little things. We alienate our children. They re we repel them from us rather than draw them in and bless them, or the opposite. I think it's so profound. There's another whole subject, and that's a, you know, again, I'm getting into parenting. I know this is on marriage, but nonetheless. <laughs> I always think it's profound, isn't it? Those two are not exclusively <laughs> different, by the way. Right? My, let me just comment on my comment. Footnote. My wife has always said this. She says, you know what? The sexiest thing to my wife is when I play with my kids. It's amazing. Like, I'm like, really? <laughs> like, that's the secret? <laughs> but there's some truth to that. When you go and you, you love on your kids, whoa, you know, the wife's like, all right, this is good. If you're a good dad, it's it helps be a good husband, all right? So just a little secret there. But, the 
point is, I love how, you know, I, and, I, and I, we could fast forward and go to Jesus. What was Jesus' demeanor, right? When it says all the children came to him. I love that. Like, what a sign of a meek and mild, gentle man. Was he strong? You bet. Could he chase out money changers out of the temple? You bet. But, boy, he was attractive to the young. They said, oh, man, because they felt warmth and acceptance in his presence. That's what we should do. But what's the result? Well, we often bring frustration, discouragement, dissatisfaction, resentment, bitterness into our homes. So now the man struggles in all of his relationships. His relationship with God, we struggle. Relationship with our spouse, we struggle. Relationship with the earth, our job, we struggle. And this is why it's so hard. This is why we don't, we don't typically right, have the ideal marriage. There's no perfect marriage. There's no such thing as a perfect marriage. But there is a difference between a good marriage and a bad. And a good marriage can work through their problems. A bad marriage doesn't work through their problems. And the problems simply grow. So how do we work through our problems? Glad you asked. Okay. <laughs> Let's try to wrap this up by pointing out some practical things. First, or page 27. Got a couple more pages of notes. And take good notes here. Underline, highlight, because what we're going to do, we're going to take a break after this. We'll, we'll, you know, after this session, we'll mingle for a few. Then we're going to do our breakout session. Guys, we'll go upstairs. We'll set up some chairs, chairs and tables. Uh, upstairs, ladies, feel free to stay down here because we're gentlemen, right? We'll go upstairs and stay down here, right? But then I, I want you to take some of these, you know, thoughts. Arm yourself with these thoughts for the discussion to follow, okay? But how do we fix this? Well, I want to highlight several important things. Verses 8 to 15 is what you might call the divine pursuit. God pursues Adam and Eve. We have this pursuit and this promise that he gives to them. Now, underneath the, the subheading pursuit, I have the, a paragraph in italics. Notice this. God's approach to Adam and Eve not only reveals the gracious heart of God, but also charts the path for us to follow if we are to rebuild our relationships. There's my big premise. God shows us how to fix it. He, he shows us by doing it himself and giving us a model to follow. So what happens? Notice this. God's grace is evident in two realities that are clearly present in this text. First, look at the verbs. Verse 8, verse 9. What does God do? First, he came. They heard the sound or the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. First, he showed up. He came. He pursued Adam and Eve. And then what did he do? He spoke. The Lord calls, a summons to come into one's presence. He called to Adam. Where are you? So he approaches. He speaks. What happens next? Again, the words of Doug McLaughlin, he says this, quote, While there was moral justification for the immediate extermination of the race, God in divine grace came extending to Adam and Eve the possibility of reclamation. Let's put this back together, Adam and Eve. He goes on and says, This initial approach to the fallen couple was only the first step in an immensely long journey that would ultimately lead Christ to the conception of Mary's womb, the cradle in Bethlehem, the carpenter's bench in Nazareth, and ultimately the cross upon Calvary. End quote. First bullet point. Adam and Eve did everything they could to escape God's justice. Right? They hid, they dodged, they, they hide in the, uh, under the, well, in the trees, but also with the fig tree, fig aprons out of, made out of fig leaves. They're doing everything they can to dodge, etc., to escape God's justice. 
the violation of which was certain to bring us wrath, here's humanity's first ugly manifestation of self-preservation at everyone else's expense. So deep are the ravages of sin that even God can be blamed by his fallen creatures. Right? That's, it's subtle, but in Adam's charge of God, he says, well, it's the woman that you gave me. Right? You see that? Yeah. It's not just the fact that, hey, it's my fault. Well, no, it's my wife's fault. But really, God, it's your fault because you made the woman, remember? Yeah. Right? <laughs> that complex creature with all the buttons and switches and stuff? I don't I can't figure it out. So it's all God's fault. So what happens? Well, second bullet point, God will not allow us this luxury. I love that. He won't let us just run and hide. He pursues us because he's a loving father. He's a good shepherd. He won't allow us this luxury. He emphatically does not say that we're not guilty. Instead, he faces us squarely with our guilt, our complicity, our willing participation in evil. And once we are prepared to acknowledge it, he shows us the way out. He says, all right, you ready to own up to it? Great, now let's fix it. So how does God do this? Man, it's beautiful. God is so gentle. Look at the next uh, subheading. Divine interrogatives, verses 9 to 13. Again, Genesis is full of firsts. I, I, I don't know if you've noticed this in the notes. Uh, I, love, I love to highlight every time it's the first time something happens in the Bible. Well, you know what the first question is in the Bible? Right here in our text. God starts coming, and he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam, you know, then finally shows up. He says, well, what did you do? But notice all these interrogatives of God, right? I mean, this is God's, well, first interrogative of God. I mean, there was the, the questioning of the serpent where he says, well, has God really said that? Right, but this is the first question God ever uh, asks. This is the first divine interrogative. But notice this. Realize that it's obvious, but we have to state it. Does God ask questions to get information? No. No, he's all-knowing. He doesn't ask questions to get information. I love the couple of this I have in your notes, John 18.4, is, is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The crowds are coming. He says a cohort of men, up to possibly as many as 600 people, were coming to arrest Jesus in the Garden. That's where a cohort is. And so this cohort of guys show up to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says in John 18, 4, that knowing all things that would befall him, so there's his pre-knowledge, he knows everything that's about to happen. He steps forward and he says, all right, what are you looking for? And then he say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And remember, they all fall down backwards? Yeah. Right? And I love that scene because it's like, who's really in charge of this scene? <laughs> you know, they're there to arrest him, but he just knocked them all over with a word. But, but the point is, did Jesus ask that question for information? No. It just said in the, in the verse prior, knowing all things that were about to happen, he then asked the question. So why does God ask questions? Rather, God asks questions to elicit a response from us. He's looking to soften our wills, to lead us to a conclusion. His questions are for our benefit, not his. So God's questions provide us an opportunity to repent, to confess. Questions are the opposite of accusations. We'll come back to that in a moment. Here's just, and, and we're not going to look at these up. We don't have time. You can do this on your own later. But in that uh, italicized, bold, you know, indented paragraph, I just give you a few examples elsewhere in the scripture of these divine interrogatives where God shows up and he asks questions. He's drawing us out. But then let me give you a quote by Demarest. Bruce Demarest says this, After willfully disobeying their creator, Adam and Eve did not seek God for forgiveness. Rather, they hid from him out of fear and guilt. That's Genesis 3, 8 to 10. 
In vain, the couple tried to cover their nakedness with leaves, but God sought them out and provided a covering of animal skins. This incident shows us, or shows, that the initiative in salvation, that is the, the initiative to restore the relationship, lies with God. This is where the secret lies. You have problems in your relationship, in your marriage. You have issues, you got, you got arguments. Well, let's take a cue from God and say, okay, are you pursuing? Are you, how about you initiate getting it right? How many times does that happen where the spouses give the cold shoulder to the spouse, the silent treatment, right? I'm going to punish you by saying and doing nothing. <laughs> and that sort of idea is in him. It's like, how long are you going to hold out there, right? It's like frigid in here. You know, but how about we take the initiative? How about somebody steps forward like God does and says, hey, I love you. I want this to be restored. So if I need to confess my sin, I'll do it. But I, let's, let's talk. Let's get this right. God takes the initiative. That's what we need to learn to do. Take the initiative. We go. We admit our sin, etc. But be careful. When you go and confess your sin and admit it, all right, page 29, be careful not to accuse your spouse. Because this is what we do, right? We love to blame shift. Well, it wasn't me. God, it was the wife you know, that you gave me. Well, what did you do? Well, it was the serpent. Again, we're really good at this. This is coming back to some of the notes I found from that book, Soul of Shame. Top of page 29 says this. Accusation has a chief role in promoting shame and producing loneliness. Accusation is the means by which Satan and others bring to bear upon us the power of shame. We talked about that earlier, the power of shame. How do you activate the power of shame in someone's life? And this is, we got to be careful with this because it's a powerful motivator. Most of us are guilty of parenting our kids this way. Why? Because it typically works in the short run, in the short term. Now, we're actually giving them psychological issues they're going to have to deal with later in life. But we can shame our kids with the pointed finger, the how dare you, come down on them. Can we shame our kids into behavior, you know, behaving? Sure we can. It happens all the time. Until they're teenagers. <laughs> exactly. But you're exactly right. Because at some point, they shut it off. Right? They say, ah, I've heard enough of you. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't care about me. Why? Because there's no relationship there. You haven't pursued them. You haven't loved them. You've just accused them. You've pointed the finger. You've isolated them. You've shamed them. So rather than warm acceptance where you're drawing them to the dinner table, sitting around, laughing, enjoying good times where they're going to come back to that, you've repelled them. But we do it with our spouse. Well, I wouldn't have done it if you didn't fill in the blank, right? Wait, I thought this was supposed to be a confession, right? But it turns into an accusation. I'll confess, well, my part, but then I'm going to flip it on my spouse. I'm going to point the finger at them. And what happens? As soon as we point the finger... It activates that feeling of shame. Have you ever seen that? I see it in my kids. I see it in a dog, right? We talk about dogs. It's just, we see their emotion. You point that finger, they cower, right? They're, they're waiting for you to bring the hand. But that's the whole idea is these, that sort of shaming tactic, it's dangerous. 
And what's the way to activate that feeling of shame? Accusation. Why do you think it's the number one tool of the devil? He is called the accuser of the brethren. How does he isolate us from God? He just tries to activate that shame that's deep within inside of us. Just activate us. He has to run to flee from God rather than to God. Accusation, as I go on to say, leads to contempt, the feeling of vulnerability, alienation, loneliness, and despair. Again, we'll go there for a second time. Revelation 12 ascribes this sort of accusation to Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren. This is his primary tool. This is an absolute contrast to God and his gentle questioning in Genesis 3, verses 9 to 13. It's dramatic. So we need to take a cue from God. Number one, how do we solve the problem? Initiate, pursue, ask questions. Don't fling and hurl accusations. Make genuine confession and apology. But then what happens next? Paul, or uh, God not only comes in pursuit, but he also comes with a promise. That's verse 15. God not only pursues Adam and Eve, but also promises and provides the solution. A promise is really important. A promise in of itself is a form of enablement because it produces hope. When we make a promise to someone, when I promise something to my spouse, when I promise something to my kids, have you ever seen that come through? You're, you're extending them hope that, hey, you know, I can't do it right now, but we're going to do it tomorrow. My kids are always wanting me to you know, wrestle or throw the football or whatever. You know, it's like, well, maybe I can't do it right now, but tomorrow. That's a promise. You better keep that promise. Because you just extended hope to them. But what do you do when you smash that hope? Right? When you don't keep that promise, you're, you're, you're hurting them. Same thing. I, I, I can tell, oh, it's such a sad story. So many times, the wife says in my counseling office, he's promised to change the toy. He keeps telling me he's going to change. I haven't seen it yet. I don't believe him anymore. Why? Well, guys, because we made a promise we didn't keep. We, we, we fostered hope within their soul of genuine change, and then we smashed it with our inconsistency, our arrogance. And then you wonder, why they don't believe you the next time, right? The boy who cried wolf. Keep, keep your promises. That's what God does. He makes a promise, and then he keeps it. Notice, third paragraph under the subheading, or the heading promise. God becomes the selfless, sacrificial one who takes our sin and sorrow upon himself. He absorbs our evil into himself. He, in other words, takes the hit and offers us grace in return. This is the road to reconciliation. It's the road to reconciliation where I say, hey, I'm just, even if, if this has ever happened to you, you're trying to work through something with your spouse and they say something to you that's very unfair. They take a cheap shot. And what you are tempted to do is re react, recoil, right? To bring it back 10 times harder. But that only leads to more despair. Rather, we need to be like God. Adam and Eve pointed to God right, and said, it's your fault. And God takes the hit. And he loves them in return. The ultimate example of him taking the hit is taking their place on the cross of Calvary. So let's camp, let's camp on that idea for just a moment, and then we'll be done. What is the essence of love? You see this? Let, let's, let's flesh this out for just a few moments, and we'll wrap it up. The essence of love. Love is selflessness, right? We talked about sin, the core of it, selfishness. Love 
The core of that is selflessness. Submission freely toward God and service towards others. That's what love is. 1 John 4.18 actually tells us that perfect love casts out fear. Think about this for just a second. This is a helpful, helpful illustration. If I'm in the street almost hit by a car, I fear and run away. Right? Car's coming full speed, about to hit you, what do you do? You fear for your life and you run away. You get out of the way. But if my three-year-old is in the street almost hit by a car, what am I going to do? I'm going to run toward the danger. I'm going to run toward the car and experience joy and relief at saving the child. What's the difference between those two situations? It's love. It's my desire to, it's my love for my child, my desire to protect that child. My love for my child overcomes my fear of self-preservation. I will put myself in danger if it means save my child. Love overcomes fear. Love is more powerful than fear. Why do we hide and, and deny and, and put up the facade with our spouse? Because we don't want them to see our weaknesses, our true self. We're afraid of fear and rejection. We do the same thing with God. We, we run and hide rather than go. Why? Because at the end of the day, we're afraid of that rejection. But what if there was a God that had unconditional love, that would love us, and alleviate our fear. Where I say, okay, I am accepted because of his goodness and his love and his grace. And then we can turn around and communicate that to our spouse. I could say, or hear them say to me, I know you blew it. I know you did wrong. But I love you. That's freeing words. That it just it, it takes away the shame and the guilt. They extend forgiveness. They offer love, and now I don't have to be afraid of being exposed. Them to see my weaknesses because I'm confident in their love for me. That's how it works. So what happens? Well, again, God is the ultimate example. Bottom of page 29. It's fascinating to see the words which describe Adam's punishment and Eve's and compare them with Christ's incarnation, crucifixion on our behalf. Like I said, God is the ultimate example of what it means to take the hit. This is another whole set of notes. It's a sermon in a sermon. We won't take long with it. But if you read, read verse 17 to 19, you're going to see a number of things that are part of the curse that if you study hard, not even that hard, you just read, you will find that God takes these things upon himself. Adam was told that there would be sorrow because of his sin. Genesis 3, 17. But Isaiah 53 says that Christ is a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. God says there are going to be thorns and thistles because of the curse and sin. That's Genesis 3.18. But we read that Jesus wore the very thorns of the curse upon his brow as his crown. Mark 17, or 15, verse 17. They clothed him with purple. They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Genesis 3.19 says it's by the sweat of man, hard work, that we are going to scratch out a meager existence. But Luke 22.44, so we read, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in anticipation of the cross, Jesus Christ said, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became as great drops of blood falling to the ground. 
Chapter 3, verse 19 of the book of Genesis tells us that we, we are from dust and we're going to go back to dust. The dust of death. So we read in that powerful prophetic portrait of Messiah's crucifixion, Psalm 22, 15, My strength is dried up with a potsherd, my tongue clings to my jaws, you have brought me to the dust of death. He died in our place. For Adam, there was nakedness. Genesis 3, verse 7, 10, and it seems that Jesus was subjected even to this indignity too. For we read, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. They stripped Jesus and hung him naked on the cross. Why? He did it for us. So here's the summary. Here's the big ideas. All the indignity, shame, and suffering associated with Adam's sin are sorrow, thorns, sweat, dust of death, even nakedness. Jesus Christ bore on our behalf as he endured in his own body and being on the cross, God's just judgment against human sin. There will come a day when, we're in Revelation 22, verse 3, there will be no more curse. All of its ugly effects will be wiped away. This is possible only because Jesus on the cross became a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 In precise theological correspondence, the curse imposed on humanity in Eden, Jesus bore its terrifying brunt and endured its crushing weight for us in his propitiatory cross death. It is God who declared and imposed the curse. His holiness was speaking and acting. And it is God who delivers us and removes that curse. His love is speaking and, and acting. That is the meaning of Christ's death. On the cross, holiness and love are reconciled. As the psalmist says, right, and I don't put it in your notes, but Psalm 85 says, in, in, in God, justice and peace have kissed each other. On the cross, holiness and love are reconciled. They make peace with one another. The penalty uh, holiness demands is satisfied. The pardon love desires is provided. This means that God gives what God demands. What he demands is a holy sacrifice for sin, and that is what he has given. It is his holiness that demands the sacrifice. It is his love that provides it. Do you see how that serves as our model? Do you see how we need to learn to become like God? Initiate, be selfless, take the hit. Don't accuse, but offer love. Be sacrificial in your love giving to your spouse. If you have two spouses that are committed to that, even one. Right? It's better if there's two, by the way. <laughs> but 1 Peter 3 says, what if you have an unbelieving spouse? He says, by your godliness, win them all. You can make a difference in your relationship if even one but it's better if two spouses were both committed to this sort of selfless love. It, it, it works. And you pursue that sort of relationship with your spouse. You overcome the hindrances of sin, etc. You enjoy the blessedness of the one flesh relationship as God designed it. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to close in prayer and we'll transition. We'll take a little break. Let's just stretch. Hit the restroom. Grab some, you know, refreshment, whatever. Then we will, we're going to, again, guys, we'll head upstairs. We'll set up some tables and chairs up there. And we'll meet. Uh, what time we got? Three. It's 3 o'clock? Okay, great. And then it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a 5, 5.30 dinner, what's it say? 5.30, okay. So we'll take a break. So, but uh, let's do 3.30 again. Uh, yeah, so it's 3 right now, right? Okay, yes. so let's do a 3.30. By 3.30, take a break till 3.30, then we're going to do our breakout session, all right? And that will give us 
a couple of hours, right? So we got 30 minutes off, a couple of hours to sit down, enjoy the breakout session. Again, the notes and underlying things that you took in here, the whole point is to now go and discuss it, talk through it, ask questions, kind of start digesting through it, try to understand it better. After dinner, 5.30 o'clock dinner, after dinner, we'll come back and we'll do a, a Q&A afterwards. We'll just try and understand you know, what uh, the big ideas are, ask questions, and again, digest the day, try and get the most out of our time together, all right? That makes sense? All right, let's pray and we'll transition. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for this afternoon. We thank you for these precious truths that are so important for us to understand and to live by. Lord, we ask for your grace and your guidance. Lord, we are all sinners. We're sinful. We are inherently selfish. We are full of, of shame and trying to run away from that guilt and shame, and we hide and we deny. And Lord, there's all the patterns of our grandparents, Adam and Eve. We see it in our own lives, our own relationships. But we pray that you would help us to learn through the example of Christ, Lord, the divine pursuit that we see in this text and throughout the scripture, that you would teach us so that we might learn how to pursue our spouse, to lovingly develop this sort of one flesh relationship, to enjoy the blessing that you promise as a result of it. Lord, we're so grateful for your word and its guiding light. We would be so lost without it. Equip us now as we go short break and then enjoy the breakout session after that. May it be profitable. May you guide and direct what is said and done. Give us hearts and minds to understand what we've been learning and discussing, to apply it to our marriages for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. All right, you're dismissed.